Good morning. Glad you guys could be here. Good to be with you guys. Um, if it's your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors. I get an opportunity to do a book with the preaching, and we'll continue to do such this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be at this morning. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep it raised really high. One of our ushers will walk down the aisle and get you a copy of God's Word. And then if you don't own a Bible, please keep the one that we are handing out as our gift to you so that you can grow in understanding and a knowledge of Jesus. Um, I want to just acknowledge, apologize, acknowledge. I know that a lot of you guys get, didn't get a chance to check your kids in because uh, uh, we, we need more people to serve in children's ministry. That's just a little side plug right there. And so I know that there are children in the room. I will swear less this service than I did last service. Um, but no promises. And so also, if you have kids and you're like, hey, I don't want to be next to my kids right now. I've been trying to follow Jesus more in my, my walk with the Lord. And he's always bring the children to me. So if you want to bring them here on the front of the stage and just leave them here throughout the sermon, there's bread up here, there's wine. Uh, so <laughs> just feel free. Just come as you are. So. All right, so we've, we've, we've been in this series now for several weeks, and uh, we're going to conclude chapter one this morning. Um, oh, something else I wanted to tell you guys. Next week, we got a treat. So one of my favorite preachers in all of earth uh, is going to be in town next week. He was going to be here with his family on vacation because he lives in Portland, and uh, the sun doesn't come out there ever. And so he's going he's gonna to be here next week, and he's going to get an opportunity to preach with us in our, season, our series in Ephesians. So Rick McKinley from Imago Day Church in Portland, um, you're, he's very, very gifted, very, very humble, um, and can completely communicate God's word. And so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so just, just be very chill. He's a Portland guy. Don't bring the kids next week. He's from Portland. Uh, and so... So it would be a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of fun, but that's next week. All right, so Ephesians. So we're going to conclude in chapter 1. We've looked at that verses 3 through 14 for four weeks. We're going to look at this section for, for a week. And this particular section, I just want to let you know, 15 to 23, what we just heard read, it's a prayer. Okay, so keep in mind it's a prayer. We're going to try to explain what it is that Paul is praying here, but I don't want it to be an academic exercise. Um, we want to be able to understand and hear what it is that Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus and thus now the church for today. So Ephesus would be modern-day Turkey and the surrounding areas around there, and then what that means for us today. And so we're going to get a chance to look at that uh, this morning. But before we do, let's pray. Um, let's ask the Lord by his spirit to, to open up our eyes to see the text that we may understand what it is that he has for us as a community this morning. God, we thank you. Uh, I thank you, um, Lord, for the many things in which you give us. Um, in fact, Lord, so many things that we have in this world are good things that, sadly, Lord, we make the main thing. And so, God, we just ask, ask right now that, that you would uh, distract us from our distractions. That just even in this moment, Lord, as we worship together, as we worship with the children and babies and, and, and just all of us together, Lord, that we'd be able to see the exalted Christ. Um, God, that you would humble our hearts and our lives that we may be to experience you. Um, God, we... we uh, we pray, Lord, that you would lead us and that we'd be led by you as we hear and as I speak. I pray for those in this room, Lord, who have never trusted in you, Lord, that you would, you would do that work, God. And for the rest of us, Lord, that we would humbly submit to you. God, we'd be amazed by who you are. And not that you would just do something new. You would just reveal to us how good you've always been. God, we ask that you, you would uh, just open up your word in ways, God, that we may see, trust, and follow Jesus. God, we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. So in seventh grade, I just want to go back to seventh grade right now. In seventh grade, uh, we had this girl come to our school. Um, her name was Stacy, and she had come from this very, like, rich private school, uh, like, very rich private school. It was very rich and private. And so 
when she got to our school, it was like a, like a very normal public school, she just had certain things that she had picked up from her private school that she would do. Like, in fact, every time she would give an answer, she would stand up and like talk to the teacher, and the teacher would be like, hey, you know, you don't have to stand up and do that. She'd stand up and she'd give an answer. Like, I didn't like her at all, first of all, right? And here's why. You know you don't like people that can do things like way better than you, right? Yeah? Some of you guys are like, no, I don't know what that's like. You're the person that no one likes. Um, and so, so that you're probably really good at things, right? And so she just was so smart and just, I don't think she was arrogant. I just think it was the way that her school had taught her. Like every time like the teacher would like, do you know, anybody know this answer? She would raise her hand. She'd stand up, well, and she would say, well, Mrs. Spellman. And she'd always say her name. And I'm like, why are you, why are you doing it? I was making fun of her. Look at her. She's going to stand up again, right? Like that was just like part of the culture she had at the school she had gone to that she was taught that whenever she would give up and get an answer, that she would stand up and she would give an answer. It was just the way that, that, that her school culture was. Side note, this morning. I was curious, and I thought, I wonder what she's up to today, right? And I don't have, like, social media or anything. And honestly, she left our school after seventh grade, never really seen her again. I think she was like, this public school thing doesn't work. Uh, and honestly, she was right. I mean, we, just, we turned out all right, but it could have been better, I'm sure, right? So I Google her, and she is, like, one of the leading surgeon doctors, like, in New York City and so forth. And it was, like, clear she should have never been at our school, right? <laughs> We were all going to turn out to be just average people. Her, she's running the world. She's probably standing up all over the place right now, right? <laughs> Side note, right? The point is, her school had taught her a certain way, even though she had come to our school, which, which we didn't have to stand up and talk, and the teacher would say over and over again, you don't need to stand up and talk. She was so influenced by that other life that she had at the school that it took her a while to adapt to our particular culture. Now, here's what Paul is doing. As Paul writes to the people in Asia Minor, as he writes to these men and women, he understands the culture of which God had saved them in. Meaning, God does not um, draw people to himself and then take us out of the culture. You can never leave culture, right? When people say, I'm in this world, but I'm not out of this world, I get what you mean, but you're actually in the world, right? Like, you still live here, you still breathe the air, you still go to the same schools, you still listen to the same shows, even if they're Christian versions of the shows, they're just worse version of the same shows, all right? So we're, we're, we're in a particular culture, and so Paul, when he writes to this, these people, he understands their culture, he's been there before. I mean, if you read in um, Acts chapter 19, we see Paul is there in Ephesus, and their culture, where their shaping was, was one of magic and arts. Um, there were a lot of bowing down and worshiping the gods of their day, the particular temples that were there. And they believed that they, they were drawing influence or power from these gods, from the magic and from the art. And they were very powerful. Paul is not saying that's not power. He's saying no, it is powerful, but I'm trying to show you that there's a greater power in Jesus who you've given your life to. And here's the other thing we understand is just because we accept Jesus into our hearts that doesn't mean that we've accepted Jesus into our vocations, our relationships, our politics, our sexuality, and so forth. Meaning we still need to have a world and life view that we're able to look through and live through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so, so unless you were raised in a family in such a way that taught you um, the morals and values of Christianity in a way that was full, most of us come to Jesus and we know our sins are forgiven, we know that he loves us, we know a few things about Christ, but we don't know how that is to affect the way that we think about recreation, that we think about work, that we think about um, men and women. That, that it, there has to be a shaping of it because whatever culture we were in, we're going to naturally gravitate towards that particular culture. 
And so, so as Paul talks to the Ephesians, he talks through them throughout time by the Spirit to us. That we may be able to understand that we're not swimming in an cultural place. We are swimming in waters that are pulling and pushing us away from the center in which we draw from the power of Jesus. So as Paul starts here, he's praying that we would actually be deepened in our most center-set position, and that is in Christ Jesus. And there's a few things that we'll be able to see here from Paul, but first, let's go ahead and start in verse 15, where we're reading here. He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. So Paul starts off this section and he says this, for this reason. That's the same thing as, and if you have a different translation, it may say, therefore. Now I say this all the time and you're going to get it. And you say, what is the therefore? Therefore. Like, so you're like, that's lame. He always does that. But you know what? I guarantee you're going to teach somebody else the same thing. Thank you. And so you have, you have the therefore, what is the therefore, therefore, and that usually the writer is connecting something he's about to say with something he previously said. What he previously said, 3 through 14, um, we spent four weeks on it, so hopefully you know a little bit about it, um, is that God himself in Christ is uniting all things, heaven and earth. Like that's his big picture. And that we are participating in that by faith in Jesus, which he's called us, we've been chosen in that, that we've been adopted into his family, that we've been redeemed off the slavery of sin, that we've been forgiven of our penalty of sin, that we will always belong to God, and he's given us the Holy Spirit as a seal of approval and acceptance, that he's seen this big picture of what God is up to in the world. In fact, this is the theme of all Ephesians, that God is working decisively in Christ to unite and reconcile all things. Later, he's going to talk about what that looks like racially. We're going to spend three weeks on that buckle up. Um, and, then, and then he talks about what that's like in the church, what that's like relationally and so forth. But now he's saying all things. And then Paul starts off 3 through 14. It's praise. That whole part, that 3 through 14 is one long sentence in the Greece and the Greek and in the Greece um, of, of, of praise. It's just praise. It's adoration for who God is. This next section is prayer. And what Paul is doing He's modeling for us what true Christian formation or discipleship looks like. It's centered around praising God and prayer. Not just reading a bunch of books, praising God and prayer. Not just showing up the church, praising God and prayer. The people of God for all of history have been about praising God for who he is and what he's done and then praying to this God. All right? So he models it for us. And then he says, because God is uniting all things in Christ, because you, he's talking to these people who have accepted Christ, because you're in Christ, for this reason, he says, for this reason, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. Meaning, Paul heard about what was going on in the life of the church in Ephesus. So Paul himself, if you can recall, he's on home arrest right now. And while he's on home arrest, people are coming to him um, or writing letters to him about what's happening in the churches in which he started. Like people are probably coming to him from Philippians. He's like, hey, Philippians are doing great. They're always been doing great. And Paul's like, hey, how are the Corinthians doing? He goes, they're not doing good. They're still tripping. He goes, you know what? I'm going to write them two letters, right? And so he talks about that. And then and somehow letters or somebody came and said, hey, the people in Ephesus are doing well. And Paul says, I've heard of your faith and the love that you have for all the saints. What he's saying is, and what we got to understand is, what we do in our culture, we separate everything. So we have a thing called theory and praxis, right? And so we, we think in terms of that even in faith. Like I believe and then there's what I do. In the Bible, those things are always connected. 
I believe, therefore I do. I believe Jesus is Lord, therefore I live in a such a way. Doesn't mean we're always consistent in it, but, but there's a believe and obey. So he's saying, I've heard of your faith, meaning I know that you believe, and the reason I know is not because I heard, because I heard that you're actually doing something. And what you're doing is that you have love for all the saints. There's a picture there of not just the people who are a part of your particular tradition, but all who are in Christ, that you are known for your faith by loving people. Paul says, I've heard all that. So he knows he's talking to a group of men and women. He's writing to a group of men and women who trust in Jesus. And he continues and he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him. So when he says, I continue to remember you, what he, the language there is, every time I think of you guys, I pray for you. Like, think about that. Every time you think of a particular people, you pray for them. He just said, I'm praying for you. And it's not like Paul is saying, I do nothing but pray. Guys, I haven't eaten in years because I've been praying for all of you guys. Paul's like, no, I'm eating, right? But when I think of you, I pray for you. And here's what I'm praying for you. Now we get into the heart of it. He goes, here's what I'm praying for you. Everything that I just wrote about, 3 through 14, I'm not praying that you just kind of understand that. I'm praying that it gets worked into the community of your life. I, I, I'm praying that it gets worked in every detail, every mundane thing, the highs and lows, the experiences of your life, that Christ truly and his work on the cross and through the resurrection gets hammered into your life. Because I'm praying that you have a spirit of revelation, a, a wisdom, right? And Paul, we've said this before, is a Jewish man writing, and he can't help but understand how everything in the Old Testament ha ha has its movement towards Christ and its fulfillment in Christ. So when he says a, a spirit of wisdom and revelation, he's saying that God would reveal himself and wisdom to you that you may know how to live. That you may know that in your particular culture, it's caused you to metaphorically stand up in certain ways. And Paul's saying, but now in Christ that you'd have wisdom to see through his eyes and ways in which you might know better how to live in light of what Christ has done on your behalf. Because I'm praying for that wisdom. And the wisdom literature in the Old Testament of the Proverbs, of the Psalms um, that we begin to read, he's saying all of that finds its fulfillment in Christ Jesus who just not personifies wisdom, but embodied wisdom here in his life and his death and his resurrection. He goes, I'm praying that you have this wisdom. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, you don't know God, and I'm praying that you might know God. He's saying, you already know. I'm just praying that you know more. That's something we need to understand. You already have the Spirit. I talked about it in verse 14. I'm praying that you have more of the Holy Spirit. That you have more of the Spirit in such a way that doesn't just show you that you're, you're God's possession, but how to live your life being filled and flooded with the Holy Spirit. That you may have that sort of wisdom to be able to make decisions in the world and the context in which God has you. So for us, it's here in Tempe or whatever city you live in around Tempe that we may have a spirit of wisdom, of revelation that God will reveal himself afresh, afresh, afresh in Christ Jesus. Now, this is, this is, this is helpful for us. Um, when we begin to understand what Paul says next. Here's what he says. The spirit of wisdom of revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, again, Paul, he's Hebrew. Um, when he says knowledge, he has a Hebrew understanding of knowledge, not Greek. Most of us, 
we have a Greek understanding because we live in the Western world. And when we hear knowledge, it's usually information. And that's the way we do Christian discipleship, unfortunately. That we think, that's where we do education, that's where we do a lot of things. If I, if I give you more, if you know more, then you'll do more. Um, if there was a way to take a test of how much Christians, like the average person in this room, those of you in this room who are Christian, how much you actually know about God and how consistent you act towards what you know. Do you think that'd be, it'd be equal? And if you said yes, you're a liar. <laughs> right? None of us. But we think somehow if you just know more, that's how change happens. Well, that's, that's not what Paul's talking about. When he says that you have, he's praying for a knowledge of him, it's that, that we would have an increased knowledge of God. And it has more to do with experience. So, so it's not just knowing about God and about knowing things about God. It's not just reading books, nothing less than that. But it's now going, I experience it. That, that I can actually talk about these things. I, I remember the first time that um, I was a young pastor, and I'm still a young pastor, just in case you wanted to know. Um, there's, there's, I had zero kids, and someone was like, hey, will you go teach this class on parenting? And I immediately was like, yeah. Um, read some scriptures, read a book, came, and was talking about parenting. And then this, 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 this guy said, do you, he asked, I forgot the question he asked me, but he asked me something about parenting. And I'm like, no, I don't know that because I don't have any kids. Anyway, another question. I'm like, listen, guys, I'm just here to tell you what the Bible said in this book that I read. And this guy was kind of like, I don't want to listen to you no more. I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't want to. <sighs> You're right. As opposed to going, I don't know what I'm talking about here, but here's what the scriptures say. How about you enter in and tell me what you've experienced through God's scriptures and being a parent? Like One of the ways, I think, for those of us in Christ, what we need to realize is, like one of the best phrases we can have is, I don't know what I don't know. But God does. He doesn't always tell me. But I don't know what some kid just burped just now and it was perfect. <laughs> God's like, watch this, bam, right? So, so what does that look like, experience? And so, all right, the best way to communicate this knowledge and experience, like tension, is if you've ever seen, like one of the best movies ever, ever, is Goodwill Hunting, right? I know you guys are waiting, like, what movie is he gonna say? Some movie that I've never seen before, cultural movie. No, wait, that comes in a couple of weeks. So Goodwill Hunting, great movie. And then, you know what? If it's something that you can't watch because of the language in it and so forth, I understand that. For me, I watched it over and over and over again. And so the there's a scene where the character played by Robin Williams, who's a professor, and the character played by Matt Damon, who's like this arrogant student. They're like at the park, and you know, this arrogant student thinks he knows everything, and he's kind of questioning the professor, and the professor just unloads on him. And I wanted to show the clip, but there's so much language in there that's inappropriate for people. Um, some of the language that most of your pastors use, not me. Um, but there's, there, I, I'm going to read I'm going to read this, this version. And so you've got to realize he's talking about you might know things. The professor's like, you might know things, but you haven't experienced anything. And so here's this scene. It's a little long, but bear with me. If I asked you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus of your, your personal favorites. You may have even been laid a few times, but you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and truly feel happy. You're a tough kid. I ask you about war, and you'll probably say, uh, throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends, but you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watched him gasp for his last breath, looking to you for help. And if I asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet, but you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable. Known someone who could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you, 
who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel and to have that love for her too and to be there forever through anything, through cancer. You wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in a hospital room for two months holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that the term visiting hours doesn't apply to you. You don't know about real loss because that only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. There's a sense he's saying, you can read about a lot, but there's an experience that takes you far deeper. What Paul is saying is, you can read books. You can even quote the catechisms you've been raised in. You can quote and regurgitate scripture. But what he's talking about this prayer is, not that just you know about God, but you are fully known and experienced this God. And this experience that you have of this God is in the thickness of life. The one who is okay with loss because he knows what it's like to dare to love because he was willing to lose his son in order to welcome us in. That we have this, this sense of understanding this God when our own doubts at those of us who have faith are deeper than the Grand Canyon in itself. That when we experience this sort of love, this knowing and experiencing God, though we've gone through the worst of the worst of the worst, and yet we can still hold out faith in this God because he holds out his hand for us. That no matter what the circumstances may be, that what, what Paul is praying for and what the Bible presents to us as those who follow Jesus is not some Disneyland type faith that you step into the kingdom of God and life is great. He does not promise us that. That he's called us to righteousness, that he's called us to love, to mercy and grace, but he's also called us in that, in this life, to suffering. And he said, that is the experience of this God. And it's not a God who's exempt from any of these things because we see our God himself puts on flesh and he suffers not only for us, but he suffers right there with us. So, so this Paul, don't, we can't miss this. He's praying not that we become good theologians, but we become good lovers. And that that sort of love would begin to change our life. That transforming love that when it says the knowledge of him, that is, it is a sanctification or a better word, becoming more and more and more and more and more like Jesus as we look to him and as we experience him, as we're with him. Amen? We can't say, we can't say that we know God because we quote unquote accept him in our heart at some point in our life and then we moved on. Knowing involves intimacy and knowing and communication and so forth. Right? I can't, I can't like say holly like on our, to my wife on the day we got married, like, hey, I love you, I love you. Hey, we're good. We know each other. We're good. All right, I'll see you in heaven. Right? Like, it's like, like that's not it. There's constant communication, whether it's in words or text or in pictures. Let, let's be honest. We don't write pictures or draw pictures. We talk. We text. Or there's verbal, unverbal communication, but there's communication. Paul's saying, I pray that you have a spirit of wisdom, a revelation, that through Christ, that you would be able to know him, that your knowledge would increase of him. I thought when I became a Christian, if I could just read enough books, I can catch up to everybody else. And I realized there was no such thing as catching up to anybody. It was following Jesus. And I might have just realized that maybe in the last year, sadly. That what, 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 what really matters is not just that we know God, but that rather we are known by God. Because the degree that we see that we are known by him to the degree that we want to know him more, his love always precedes our love. His action always precedes our, our action. So Paul is saying, I'm praying not that you just know him. I'm praying that you know him. 
and there's experience of that, amen? And everything Paul says from this prayer, it fleshes out from there. And he, he, he paints three pictures of he's saying what this deep intimacy of knowing and experiencing God fleshes out to that he wants us to know. One is hope. The second is the glory of inheritance. And the third is power. So read with me here again in verse 18. It says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope which you were called. What are the riches of this glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? When he says he's praying for the eyes of our heart to be enlightened, he's not saying, I pray that you may know Jesus. He's talking to people who know Jesus. He's just saying, I want you, I want you to know him deeper. And the heart in, in the Bible is not just like the heart that beats in our chest. The heart is the center of your whole life. That's physically, that's intellectually, that's emotionally, and that's spiritually. That our hearts would be opened up to a degree that we may be able to see more clearly with eyes of the eyes of God. That we may be able to feel deeply with the emotions of God. That we may be able to understand cognitively with the mind of Christ. And that spiritually we'd be led by the Holy Spirit. And so our most inward being, that we'd be able to see God and live our lives in direct reflection of who God is. And he says when that happens, that you may understand, he says first here, to the hope in which you've been called. The interesting about hope here, what Paul's talking about, is there's a looking back and there's a looking forward. He says the hope that you've been called, meaning you've been called to something. Paul says in 3 through 14 that God chose you before the foundation. We know nothing about that. And then all of a sudden he says, but you've been redeemed, you've been forgiven, that you've been called to participate in this life relationship with God. And he says that that's, that's what we can experience now. But the hope is saying he called us not only that we may be forgiven. Most of Christian literature, most of Christian experience is about the fact that God saves us and that we've been forgiven of our sins. That is true. It is amazing. We've got a lot of songs about it. We don't have a whole lot of songs about the hope that is to come. We don't have a whole lot of songs about the kingdom of God being fully realized and sin being purged and evil being removed and us sitting and living in the glory of God. And, and, and I think partly that's the case is because we don't have a good imagination. Like we don't, like most, of, most people like myself who usually teach and stuff and write, we don't have good imaginations. That's why we need artists, we need poets, we need playwriters, we need rappers. That's right, can't be born. Right, right. We, we need people who are immersed into the scriptures and to the gospel who begin to imagine the day when Christ will come and redeem and restore all things and that we may be able to have an imagination of that hope. And in fact, if we don't, we may not be able to, ha we may not be able to have the ability to live in our present reality. Because thinking about the future is not some weird way to escape what we're going through here. <laughs> Knowing what God is going to do, believing that's faith and what God has promised that he's going to reconcile and redeem all things gives us an understanding how to live in the miry muck of today, right? It's a people who be able to understand that life who are able to go through the things in which we go through in our daily mundane lives now. So Paul says, here's this hope. This is this glorious hope that we have ultimately in what Christ has done and what Christ is going to do. And the, the, the church is built off of this hope. We use the word hope all the time as just, you know, wishful thinking. Hey, I hope this happens. I hope this happens. Paul's saying, no, no, no. The hope that we have is a glorious hope. This is a beautiful hope, and it's rooted in what God has done and what God will do. And so it's in reality trusting that God is bringing heaven and redoing, re renewing, excuse me, this whole world. Amen? 
And since Paul says, I pray that as you have a spirit of revelation in this Jesus and a knowledge about him, that it deepens that you would be able to understand hope. And the second thing he talks about is his glory, primarily the glorious inheritance. Verse 19, or excuse me, continue in verse 18. The hope which is called, you're called to, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, when he says the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints, so you have people who have like theologians, writers, Bible commentaries, who, who have written like books and books and books and books about, okay, what's the inheritance here? Is it God's inheritance or is it the people of God's inheritance? And there are literally are like arguments on each side. It's God's inheritance. No, 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 it's people's inheritance. Um, and so I am not smarter than them. Stacy, she's smarter than they are. She's a doctor now, the Bronx, she's doing it. Um, but like, I am not. However, um, when she's, well, is it God's inheritance or is it our inheritance? Yes. That's it, right? <laughs> it's the truth that what's glorious is God so desperately wants us back. It's a beautiful picture. Sin has done something with humanity and he's separated us from God and separated us from ourselves and from creation and so forth. And God is saying, I'm going to act and have acted decisively in Jesus to, to, to win you back, to bring us back and that we become his possession and his inheritance, that God desires to be with us. Another way to say it is God loves us on purpose. The, the flip side of that is, in Christ, we get God. That we, we get whom we were made for. That, that what sin did is it blinded our eyes that we thought we were made for so many other things. Like we say that now, I'm made for this, I'm made for this, I'm made to do this, I'm made, no, 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 no. you're made for God. And when you're in right relationship with God, now those other activities, you can see you're made by God in such a way to do those good works in different areas. So, so the, when it says the riches of this glorious inheritance, it's talking, he's trying to use a, a picture here of like what something would be like that's amazing that you could receive. And he said it's kind of like that. So here's, here's my illustration. I love reading Dwell Magazine. It's a magazine that is about like really awesome houses that none of you live in. Uh, and... <laughs> It is just an amazing, like I just love the picture of it. And it's usually like houses and obscure places, big, huge houses that like by architects that, that only work with people that none of us know. Um, and so look, one of the houses was on, on the ocean. Like think of this beautiful house, right? Imagine this. Beautiful house, glass, like windows everywhere. And not like a window, like the whole house, Right? and it's on the ocean, the master bedroom sits on top of everything else. There's no curtains or blinds because you don't need privacy because what's in front of you is the ocean, right? And, and the way it works is you wake up in the morning to the sun, you're like, the sun comes up, you're like, oh, the sun's waking me up. Hey, baby, get up, let's do this. We are doing it right now, right? This is a, a different, probably words, choice would have been better than that. That's all right, that's all right, that's all right, 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 right. <laughs> glorious inheritance. <laughs> so you have, you guys got to grow up. You guys got to grow up. Can't take you guys anywhere. Uh, <laughs> beautiful house, right? <laughs> you overlook at the ocean. Everything's amazing. And the person showing you the house and was like, this is this room for this. This is the room for that. This house is amazing. This is awesome. And you're like, this is awesome. This is a great tour. And them giving you the keys and being like, it's yours now. Like, you can have this. Like, what Paul is communicating in this glorious inheritance is 
as you begin to understand the depth of God, of who he is and what he's like, that you're able to see God's glory, that you're able to see his grace, you're able to see his mercy, that you're able to experience his love, that you understand what he's doing in the world, that it's like he's taking you to different rooms, only now in Christ to say, now in Christ, this is yours. That you may now be able to see through the eyes of God, you may be able to live into the heart of God, that you may actually be able to be his hands and his feet. This is a beautiful inheritance that you can begin to experience now, but will one day fully live into the reality of this glorious inheritance. So, so, so Paul says, he prays that you may have this hope, that you may have this glory, and he concludes here in talking about the power. Here's what Paul says here in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of the power towards us who believe um, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, his right, at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all. So here's what he's saying about this power. He says, I want you to know the power. For us, we hear that, and there's a bunch of things that can come around, but for, for, first we've got to start with what did it meant for them. Like, they knew about power. They already believed in power. They believed that the magic and the arts brought a particular power, that the gods brought a particular power, that there was spiritual power and political party, power. The thing about them is they didn't really separate political and spiritual. All of those things were together. And Paul is saying, I want you to know that in Christ, that there's a far greater power for you. There's a power that shapes you. There's a power that guides you. And this power is in Jesus, and he shows how Jesus flexes this power. He shows off this power. Like, like you, people show off things by doing something. And the power in itself is in the gospel. Now, later when Paul is writing to the church that's in Rome, he says that the, the gospel is the very power of God. And, and here's how he shows it. He says, first, he says that this Jesus died and was raised. First, he redefines power. Like our culture, the way power is, you dominate the other, right? You conquer and then you gain, you gain, you gain. Well, on the cross, we see it's, it's actually you give and you trust that God and God you receive. He, he, he says this is a whole different way of looking at power. Jesus, he says, was raised from the dead. The, the power that we could not break out of is that of death. Like humanity cannot get rid of death. And we can't. We can ignore it. We cannot go to funerals. We can maybe prolong someone's life we can prevent it to a particular point, but we cannot get rid of death. With all our advances and so forth, we cannot get rid of death. And yet in Christ, as, he's di as he dies, God, um, by the power of the Holy Spirit, raises him from the dead. That becomes central to what we believe as Christians as the beginning of what God is doing and renewing and uniting all things. That that hope is going, if he did that and he promises that all will come by faith with him, then, oh, that's a beautiful picture of God raising him from the dead. Now, understand this. He didn't just reverse the order of decay and death. Like, like here's what I mean. So I've had quite a few surgeries, maybe five, maybe six, can't remember. Um, three of them on one shoulder. And what would happen is I'd get injured, and then I'd go to a doctor, and the surgeon would fix my shoulder and, to get me back to play again. And then I'd get injured again, and i have another surgery to get me back to play again. And then I got injured again, and the doctor was like, you're done. Right? 
So point being is though he fixed it and I was able to be functional again, it, it might have even been as good as it was before, but it was never the way it ought to be. Jesus didn't just reverse the order and say, oh, I'm back to life. He transcended death. And that means he's given a glorified body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot corrupt, and that he promises that every man, woman, and child that believes in Christ, though in this life we suffer and will, and in this life we die, that we be raised afresh to the glory of God and with glorified bodies to reign with him. He shows the power of sin, Satan, and death. It's done with in Jesus Christ. So I want you to know that power. I don't just read about it. I want you to know that power. And not just that, that's the way that he talks about it, but then he talks how he deals with the powers the be in their culture. He says that Jesus was raised and seated at the right hand. He's in the heavenlies. That's not, he's not talking literally here, though Christ reigns in heaven. The picture there of seated at the right hand and their culture was always about power and authority and about rule. And he's saying that Jesus now through the resurrection by the Father, the power that raised him from the dead, put him at the right hand of the Father, that he's exercising all rule and all authority. So he's telling them, you don't need to go to Artemis anymore. That was counterfeit. Come to the realness that's lasting. Don't play the short game, play the long game in Christ. You don't need to go to the magic and arts. You don't need the cultural influence that you can get from these things. That's the short game. It works for a little bit, it does. But this is the long game, the power of all powers that, is being, that all the other powers are being subdued under his feet. Okay, for us in our day, we shouldn't be bellyaching about getting political power. We shouldn't be bellyaching about the things that this world is taking away from us as Christians and our privileges. We were never supposed to draw power from this world. Our power has always come from outside of this world to the one who the world belongs to. Like, we should never be looking, when we hear these things, I'm not trying to say we don't vote, we don't have rights, we don't um, pursue things, policies, we should. But we should understand, we should not be doing it for the advancement of Christian power. We should be doing it from the advancement of the kingdom of the power of God that is in us already. So that means we may actually suffer loss for the sake of somebody else's gain that actually might look more like the Jesus in whom we follow and whom we believe. So, so, so he's saying the power is the power that comes from Jesus. That Jesus is more powerful than death, that Jesus is more powerful than any structure or system or culture that we can, we can experience here. And when it says he's above the rulers and authorities, that literally means demons. That the institutions that we can see that behind these things, behind lives, is that they're, they're evil. And evil is not just in institutions. Institutions are created by people, and evil are in people. And you say, who? The person sitting in the seat that you're in. That's you, by the way. <laughs> like, we can't get rid of that. And he's saying there's a power that's greater than that that will remove evil. And then lastly, there's a picture of Jesus being the head. Verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all. He, he, the point of Jesus being the head is he has authority over all things. And now the church, that is not redemption Tempe, that's anybody who's in Jesus Christ, anybody who's trusted in Christ, that we are now in Christ and who's the head, who's the one who gives us guidance, who gives us vision, who encourages us, who is our leader. You know, one of the reasons why we don't call my role as senior pastor 
I'm just lead pastor, is it's, it might sound like trivial, but it's because there's one senior pastor and he's not giving it up. His name is Jesus. All we are are just <laughs> dummies trying to follow what he's doing, what he's creating. And so all the power, all the dominion, all authority flows from Christ. So the way that we grow in our hope, the way that we grow in his glory, the way that we grow in understanding what it means to be the church is in Christ. The way that we grow in intimacy is in Christ. The way that we grow in understanding all that God has for us is in Christ. The way that we begin to look more like Jesus is looking to Jesus collectively as a people and praying with Paul that God would answer this prayer that we may be his people for the sake of the world. Amen? It, from, from, from this chapter on, you can go and close your Bible. Chapter 2. We're going to learn about the power of sin in our life and the power of grace. First, and then we're going to really get into this wall that Paul says that Jesus broke down between Jew and Gentile. And I promise you, it's going to get very, very real when we start talking about race and reconciliation. It couldn't have been a better time for us to look to the scripture and what the scripture says about it. Uh, buckle up, because it could get a little bumpy. <laughs> so let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit. And Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. And Father, we see that even throughout this first chapter, we see Father, Son, and Spirit, that God, you are choosing, that you are redeeming. Christ is doing the work and accomplishing things for us, and the Spirit is drawing us to you. And through the Spirit, we're able to see more of Jesus, and through Jesus, we're able to see you as our Father. Father, we ask that we would be able to know you intimately, that we would have an experience of you. Lord, that you wouldn't give us anything new, that we'd realize that you've just always been good and you're just enough. God, that we would stop filling our bellies, Lord, with the things of this world that do not satisfy but poison and rot in our soul. But Father, that you would give us nourishment of the bread of Jesus Christ and water, Lord, in which we would never have to thirst again. May we, Lord, find ourselves, Lord, drinking deep of the waters of grace in what you give. God, and living in such a healthy way that we acknowledge, Lord, that we are not, but you are. We thank you, Lord, for your son. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for each other. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to opportunity to respond to God's word. and um, We respond in a few ways, but right now, I want you guys to have a moment right now of silence, as much silence as you can get. Um, and ask the Holy Spirit to this. If, if God is that powerful, and the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is, in the, is the same power that's in us, if that's true, what would your life look like if you believed that? And not just in theory, what would your life look like tomorrow if you believe that? Ask God by the Holy Spirit to reveal those things to you, and then just a moment, one of the guys will come lead us in a time of response.